0: I'm Sasha Sagan, and this is Strange Customs. I think I mentioned uh, the creatures have this nervous system center. It's fairly large for their physical structure, at least compared to the other species on their planet. It's complex they don't really understand how it works. They've just started figuring that out, but it's still early days. This system creates problems for them, despite being the source of their best qualities. One of the problems is that there's all this data and information around them, but they often have trouble determining what's important, what's true, or just retaining and comprehending it. They are in a way both limited and freed by this they are getting better, but it's slow going. They are starting to realize how much their own perceptions can impede their understanding, but they have no idea how much they have yet to grasp.
1: If I were to do another science, if I were to go back to school and study something else it would be neuroscience.
0: Today I'm talking to astrophysicist Serafina Elbadri Nance, author of the upcoming book Starstruck.
1: Because I think the way that we process information and somehow make meaning out of it and then conduct our lives accordingly is fascinating and, and sort of unbelievable and I don't really know how it works
0: but it's really cool it is so bizarre that there's so much information and we manage to take the pieces that sometimes are the most relevant sometimes mm-hmm. aren't and like what we hang on to and what we let go and like like my dad would like mute the commercials on TV because he was so afraid of like a jingle taking up space (laughs) in his brain that he could use like for something more useful and like just like the idea that sometimes you have something in your brain that you don't want in there and you get and then sometimes there's stuff you want in there that you can't retain or you just have a block on like what the name of a particular I don't know restaurant is or whatever it is yes
1: so weird totally that's one of my fears too is like I have a finite amount of space in my brain And I have to choose what goes inside of it. And sometimes I don't have a choice. And I think that's like part of the difficult and like, I don't know, fundamental experience of like, living is that you respond to things that are absorbed into your brain. And whether it's by choice, or whether it's, um, you know, just sort of this, like, subconscious absorption, then you have to yeah. um, sort of respond to that in some way. And I think like, the jingle thing is, is a great example of that, because it really is subconscious. And somehow it gets embedded in your brain. And you're like, Oh, my God, this is there forever. And I can't get rid of it.
0: So what is in the most basic way Uh what is it to study something or research something or memorize something like how do you think about it like you were talking to somebody you know from another planet
1: the goal as a researcher of course is to try to collect data and then make some sort of you know claim about it but I think fundamentally it's about learning more about our our universe and our place in the world and how that sort of impacts our own like the essence of the human condition, I think. So I think there's, you know, something fundamental about asking questions and then trying to make sense of them.
0: Yeah. So okay, so like, do you have you personally, do you have like rituals around studying, like when you're in school, or, you know, college graduate school, do you have things that you feel help?
1: Definitely. I am less about the to do list type thing and more about how can I fully immerse myself in the subject matter so that I can start to understand these fundamental truths or observations about you know what I'm trying to study and learn about and for me that means i literally dream about like what i'm learning um and it's not it's not by choice but it's it's so i'm so absorbed in it that it takes up every really every moment of my life and it, it i wouldn't necessarily say that that's healthy but there is something really beautiful about it because your brain just latches on to how it's like learning a new language how how can i fully immerse myself in this experience to try to not just understand the surface level, but the like base level, fundamental. Mm. If I'm going to take one thing away, what is that about this?
0: Dreaming about it. I mean, that really is such a reveal into how invested you are in it. So when you're getting ready to immerse yourself in something brand new, like what's the first step?
1: You know, when I'm faced with something, oftentimes the brand new things are the scariest because I have no frame of reference for better or for worse. I don't know if this is the right move, but what I do is I really like plunge into the deep end and I get as many, I, I go online and I get as many different resources as I can about Mm. this topic and I just like go for it and I read and read and read and take notes and maybe I don't really understand what I'm reading but a day later when I go back to it after reading let's say 10 Mm. papers something about it seeps in and you start to you know tie things together and build that frame of reference that you didn't have 24 hours ago. And then I think on the on the opposite end, you know, there has to be time away from the material to allow it to seep in and to be able to come back later and start to make sense of it. So I think I am still trying to find that balance of fully immersing myself and then also, you know, taking myself out of it and reminding myself, I'm a full human, a brain and feelings and emotions and and have my own lived experiences that are away from this material.
0: Yes. And also just that really into something and you like, you know, eat, sleep and like everything else like this thing. And it's like how sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees when we're in it. And it's like, sometimes it's the step back that really makes everything click. Yep. I'm curious about, so here you are, you're an astrophysicist, you've gone through all this very formal scientific education, but in your own life and in your decision to have a preemptive mastectomy, you had to learn all this scientific information without the formal setting of a curriculum and a classroom, in this case- In a situation where the stakes are much higher, personally, what's the difference between learning science at a university and learning science when it's your own medical crisis?
1: I struggled with that a lot because... I don't have any background in medicine or healthcare. And it really, I mean, talk about d- jumping off into the deep end, that really was so unfamiliar to me. I didn't have an idea of where the landscape was. I was just placed there and had to figure out how to make sense of my surroundings. This really is where my training as a scientist was incredibly helpful because something in my brain just kicked into gear and was like, all right, let's do the same thing we do for, you know, learning about supernova and exploding stars. Like, how do we gather a bunch of information about this? I mean, I had a running list of probably 20 to 25 pages of notes just by combing through PubMed and combing through the American Cancer Society and just trying to make sense of You know all sorts of different things that come into play when you're trying to weigh your your risk and your process of you know what you need to do when you get diagnosed with something like the BRCA mutation. That research brain was incredibly helpful because it allowed me to distance myself from the fear and the emotion that was taking up so much of me and start to make more um, scientifically-driven choices rather than fear-based choices. Mm. Equipping myself with that knowledge allowed me to then feel, as somebody with fear and trauma and emotion, to then feel very confident about the choices Mm. that I made and empowered. So Mm -hmm. I think it was this like two-step process of, removing myself from what was going on, gathering as much information as I could, making sense of it, going to experts, asking the scientific questions, and then coming back to myself and saying, does this feel right to me? Is this, you know, how I can move forward in this? Um, Because I am, you know, a full human being with a full spectrum of emotions and a full history. And I think that that needs to be taken into account as well.
0: I have a friend, actually, someone I grew up with who is a neuroscientist and her name is Dr. K. Tai and she's brilliant. A lot of her work is about this idea that we take the mind and the brain and separate them and that we, you know, have this idea that when we're studying neuroscience, emotion isn't really part of that. Mm. And her position is that emotion is like this distillation of what we're experiencing that gives us some information. I
1: love that.
0: What is the role of emotion in understanding something deeply, whether it's a medical decision or our place in the universe, understanding what a nebula is? How is emotion valuable if it is in these situations?
1: My mind immediately goes to literally what I work on in therapy, which is when I feel anxiety, which I feel a lot of the time. That's information that my body is giving me. Mm. And that's valuable. That's always informative and something that I can take into account and either adjust what I'm doing or, or sit with it or, or try to make use of that information. And I think emotion is always, you know, whether it's anxiety, whether it's happiness, fear, joy, it's always useful. And I think the the sort of stereotype of a scientist who's all analytical brain and no emotion mm. and no feeling is actually probably not right. Scientists can actually be very feeling human. Yeah. And really what got me into science and what got me into astronomy and thinking about those deep questions of our place in the universe, I think it's literally impossible to remove emotion from that question. Yeah. I, I mean, when when you talk about the human experience and what it means to you know be here in our universe, I mean, some people say it's spiritual, some people say it's um, you know emotional, but I think it's telling you something deeply about us and about yeah. where we are. And when I get overwhelmed in my research or when I get you know scared about my mastectomy, I think you know the way that I. I think, really used emotion in a in a positive way was the most beautiful thing about astronomy is that you can go out and see the night sky and really allow yourself to feel small, but also whole. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, there's this idea that like the problem with... Our modern view of how tiny we are is that we feel less important and that that is too damaging to our fragile egos to withstand this idea that we're not the center of the universe, essentially, and that everything doesn't revolve around us. And the, I, this idea that like we can't handle that, it's too upsetting. But the flip side of it is that we are part of something so much more astonishing and so much more vast and grand than, you know, our ancestors could have imagined. Yes, And we're beginning to understand it and to grasp it. And to me, that is more than compensating and more beautiful, more inspiring, more thrilling, and more fulfilling. As you said, makes... Can make you feel more whole
1: and i I love that you that you said it it can make us feel small in our egos, our egos like can't take it. but I think um, you know science is one way that we try to make sense of how small we are in in you know the entirety of the universe. but there are other ways that people make sense of that equally beautiful and important and astonishing, you know, art, music, writing, I I think that just engaging with that thought and with and trying to really ask questions, be curious about it, I think allows one to remove their ego from the question and appreciate the beauty that it is.
0: Yeah. And and I feel like it's like there's this parallel here where it's like something feels overwhelming. And so your choices are to just avoid it or say, okay, this is overwhelming. And so I'm going to acknowledge... My emotion, like when we feel anxiety and we say like this is information or you feel really angry or you feel like heartbroken about something that doesn't seem like that big a deal. But all of a sudden you're like that dish was my favorite, whatever it is, (laughs) you know, and it's like that this is this piece of information that if we can investigate it more deeply, we can get to a truer truth yes. than if we run away from it and that will feel better. I mean, that's the thing, like avoiding yes. unpleasantness. I mean, this is really my whole thing with like not talking about mortality and like the way that people sort of use the idea of a potential afterlife mm-hmm. as a way of not coming face to face with the brevity of our moment. Yeah. And of course, there are things that I'm like, oh, I don't want totally. to do this. But it doesn't work. Avoiding it doesn't work. But immersing yourself, running towards it really does help.
1: Yes. Yeah. I, you know, after my dad was diagnosed with cancer, um, he gave me a book about dying. And he wanted to talk about it. I I think it's very, as you were saying, uh, a very understandable human response to want to run away from hard things. But I think that so much fulfillment and meaning comes from embracing them. And part of it, I think, is a little bit of masochism. But I feel like I, uh, you know, have a deeper, more fulfilling lived experience when I run headfirst into things. And and I don't mean that as like reckless abandon, but I mean that in terms of embracing the hardness of it. and. Like, it, yeah. that's the, it's true for emotions. It's true for your career. I often feel very, very stupid in my research. You know, I feel unintelligent all the time. And I have to make peace with that and say, like, this is the time when I'm learning. This is the yeah. time, you know, when I if I don't know anything, I'm probably doing something right. And, you know, there's that saying of you want to be the stupidest person in the room. You want to surround yourself with people who uplift you. And I think that's beautiful. And it's true for me in every part of my life. Like, that's how you make meaning. That's how putting yourself in uncomfortable situations allows you to learn not just about what's going on around you, but also about yourself. That's how uh, for me, you come home to yourself.
0: I do really think that the awareness of, you know, how little we understand, it's like that is the first step to learning something, right? You cannot learn something if you feel like you already know it. It's impossible.
1: Right. I will never forget the moment I was in 11th grade and I learned that we only know 4% of the universe and 96% dark energy, dark matter is we don't understand It's pure, unhindered uh, learning for learning's sake. And I think that is so beautiful and important, you know, on the individual basis. But also, as you said, as a species, you know, how do we move forward? How can we appreciate life more deeply on Earth?
0: What do you attribute your early willingness or perhaps even desire to run towards hard things to?
1: my parents really valued academic excellence. And I thought that by succeeding and by achieving, I would get love. And Mm. that was propulsive. I also I think that is tied to my anxiety, I didn't want to feel like I was a failure. I also had just this innate curiosity of just asking questions and and wanting to know not just the answer but why yeah constantly fueling me to to try and understand
0: yeah and I think also you know children do by and large have that profound curiosity and that you yeah. know the like the phase where yes. they say why 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 constantly they yeah. we I'm I am a former child myself. Um, and, um, and, you know, that like that is innate. And then, you know, somehow along the way it gets discouraged, I think, yes. often by adults who don't want to sit mm-hmm. in that discomfort yes. and who don't want to say, I actually don't know if we could do anything for the next generation. I mean, the coupling, the sort of mental health aspect of it, of like when we have these big feelings, it's information mm-hmm. and teaching that like, you know, when you have a deep question or even a totally superficial question, like that is good and like mm-hmm. it's not annoying and like yeah. we're going to figure it out together. Totally. Um, you know, I feel like we could, that that could go a long way if for a generation to be raised
1: with that ethos. A thousand percent. In my opinion, what makes a scientist is this, you know, asking questions and, and collecting data. But I also think being a scientist is learning to say, I don't know. You have this narrow focus on a few things or on one thing that you devote years upon years of your life to. Um, And part of that devotion is also a not knowing. And I have had to learn the hard way of saying, "I, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. Or I will, I know who to ask or where to look. Speaking of the next generation, there's such an online-ness to um, how we interact and how we learn things and how we um, sort of exist. And I think it's sometimes not popular to not know online. I mean, you're really showing yourself if you don't know. And I think that's too bad because so much of life is is really not knowing and, and being open and curious to learning.
0: And also not popular, but also crucial to the scientific pursuit is I was wrong.
1: Yes. I thought, yes. this. I yes. was
0: really sure this is the evidence I mm-hmm. had. And now I have more evidence. And I got to say, yes. I was totally mistaken. 100%. You know, we have such a hard time with that. That's one of the things that like my parents really instilled in me that was so powerful about science was this error correcting mechanism yes. This idea that like moving forward changing like you know adapting to new information and being willing to change the you know general understanding being willing to change your personal understanding of something with new information yes um when the old information doesn't stand up to scrutiny mm-hmm. is like that's that's science like, heroic <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and i think it's like Part of the problem with religion is that there's more of a value often, not always, on holding on to what was before, what our Mm -hmm. understandings or our beliefs or our traditions. And this is as a person who loves traditions and loves rituals, but also acknowledges like, like everything, they must mutate in order to survive, you know, evolve. Exactly. And like this idea that like holding on, like white knuckle holding on Mm -hmm. to... A previous version of ourselves yeah. as a person, as a species, uh, you know, as a society, our social norms, our expectations mm-hmm. for people, our taboos is like more important than taking in what we can understand now yes. and
1: adjusting accordingly. Yeah, I completely agree.
0: How do you recommend that people can sift through so much information to try to find the best, truest answers?
1: I mean, one of the first things that I did when I uh, like went to college, I think, was I I followed online scientists and journalists and writers who I knew, you know, wrote for interesting publications that I admired or respected. And I think one of the actually brilliant, wonderful things about social media, and you really get access to experts in every field, yeah. if Albert Einstein was alive, imagine if he was on Twitter, right? And you could yeah. ask him a question. That access is incredible. Not everybody is trained to, for example, look at a scientific paper and make sense of it, but you can start to read summaries of that paper. You can start to maybe not get down to the fundamental primary source, but one level above it, I think allows you to start forming your own opinions while being informed by experts. Oftentimes the easy answers aren't the right ones. The answers that really people are striving to understand and and reach are the more difficult Mm -hmm. ones that require a little bit more time, a little bit more discomfort, a little bit more Um, nuance. Yeah, exactly. It's it's more complex, but it's uh, ultimately, again, you're going to have, you're not just going to take something as right or wrong, you're going to understand why.
0: That's such a great, great point. So lastly, I think most of us feel sometimes where you just feel like, I don't get it, and I'm not smart enough Mm -hmm. to get it. And there is a puzzle in front of me, there is a mountain in front of me, there is an insurmountable intellectual challenge before Mm -hmm. me. What do you recommend? How should someone look at that? How should someone start that journey towards uh, a deeper understanding to something that feels totally foreign?
1: I think leaning into that discomfort, when you feel discomfort, it's sort of like a compass needle pointing you in the right direction. And I think the spectrum of difficulties that we face throughout our lives. I think we always need community when we um, Mm. encounter them, whether it's a medical problem, whether it's a scientific problem. When I was struggling with math, I couldn't do it alone. I had mentors, I had teachers, I had, you know, I study partners. When I was going through my breast cancer stuff, I, found a group of other young people who are faced by hereditary cancer risk. And I met some of my closest friends through that group. So I think it's such a community is a way to exchange ideas and support and resources. And it's a it's a reminder that you don't have to do everything on your own. Everybody is struggling with something. um, So finding your people through that is, to me, one of the only ways to get through it.
0: Next, I get to talk to Dr. Mary Helen Immorandino Yang. She's a neuroscientist and a human development psychologist at USC. How would you explain to an extraterrestrial, how would you explain to a small child, someone with no context, like how we get information from the world into our minds, into our brains? (laughs) Let's explain it to a teenager. Okay, okay? Perfect. Perfect. A teenager from Earth. Perfect. (laughs) We tend to really
2: locate cognition in the mind exclusively as something that's distinct from emotion, as something that is um, sort of gathered up from the world and like a squirrel with its nuts, right? And and in actuality, and, and teenagers definitely appreciate this once you explain it to them. You know the reality that we conjure is is a narrative. It's a, it, and I don't mean a verbal narrative necessarily. It can be an, I- images. It can be auditory images. It can be memories. It can be beliefs and values and feelings and all mixed together. But what we're building that feels like us thinking is actually us building thinking through dynamic processes that are happening, uh, you know, in our brains and also dependent on our bodies and so we i think vastly overestimate the degree to which we go around in the world perceiving things and digesting them when in fact we go around the world expecting things imposing our beliefs onto the world and then one famous neuroscientist put it this way our perceptions merely constrain our reality Mm. and that is really the way I think we think about it. What, what is real to us is what we construct internally, which is to varying degrees built out of things that we've perceived, but perception is not an unbiased process. We're not little video camera recorders walking around like like robots would be, which is one of the reasons why it's so very difficult to make a very human-like robot, <sighs> right? Because a robot is actually metabolizing the information coming in in full and then trying to make a story. Humans and other biological agents do not do that. We are constructing a story and we impose it on the world. And then if we run into inconsistencies, if they become major enough, then we get cognitive dissonance and we start to rework it. And then we reframe the way in which we understand the world potentially. But, but it's, all, it's all conjured in our mind. It's not actually real.
0: So mostly we're just reinforcing what we already believe. Well, yeah, you know, we all know this
2: about the news media and we've all heard sure. about how people find themselves down rabbit holes where you only get the stuff that reinforces your own viewpoint. So that's true culturally. But then also, I mean, I think and this is one of the reasons I talk to teenagers about this a lot and work a lot in adolescent education is because I think that's a time period where we can systematically teach ourselves to question our own beliefs yeah. and to engage with alternative perspectives and to develop dispositions and curiosities around other ways to know and understand. Um, and those proclivities. Uh, ...serve us really well as we go out into a complex world, as we engage with other people, with, with, uh, with you know, novel things that happen, as we try to invent possible worlds that don't exist yet and think about what do we want to do, uh, do? What kind of world do we want to create? What kind of social systems and supports? What kinds of technologies and how and why are we doing what we're doing? Those things are inventions, and they're sort of collective stories that we construct. And dispositions for self-reflection, sort of taking apart and examining the things that are assumed, which is basically how you started the podcast, right? Is, is something that is um, very, very useful. Uh, as a disposition to develop, it's also inefficient, right? So you need to have skills to know when it's useful and warranted and when just get your shoes on and get out of the house (laughs) because it doesn't actually think about where these things were manufactured in this moment. You're late for school. You know what I'm saying?
0: Okay. So what about when we have no context? What about when we're going in to learn something that we don't know anything about? Like when we're going to learn something that we have no context for, we don't know what to expect. How do we, except maybe our fear and insecurity about not being able to understand it, what's the best way to understand something that seems impossible to understand?
2: I'm going to answer that a couple ways. All right. So it, it, There's never anything that you go into with a blank slate. Mm. You're bringing your expectations, your right, and you're looking for things you can grab onto Mm. that seem similar to something you already know. You're looking for causality. You're looking for right, and the the ways in which you are engaging with that novelty are also deeply cultural. So the values and beliefs that shape the way you've been uh, sort of socialized to that point in your life also are shaping the degree to which you look for things like causality or you look for things like, um, you know, um, background features versus forefront actions, right? Those kinds of um, strategies for parsing the world are in part learned uh, through cultural socialization throughout your life. Um, But the, the other side of that answer, I think, kind of uh, lends credence to the to the fundamental nature of the question you're actually asking. We are bringing ourselves and our our sort of lived experience to that point into this new space, and that presumes that you have a rich lived experience to pull from that will have some relevance to the current context. A really sad example of a time where people don't have lived context to pull from also gives us a sense of the importance of the self in understanding and previous experiences and understanding. So it's, you know, very common, for example, that children who are uh, war refugees, Mm. right, whose lives are disrupted very suddenly, Mm -hmm. And like the children who lived in Rwanda, right? When the war broke out quickly. So they had a normal life one day and then all of a sudden they're they're in a plane to Burundi and then they end up in Canada and now they live in Portland, Maine. And they're like, what the heck just happened? It's very common for those children to basically have no memories for the first (laughs) year or two that they're in the new place. Like looking back as an adult, they don't remember anything from that time period in their life because... They have no frame of reference from which to assimilate and perceive the information. You don't perceive when you don't have expectations. Ah. You need to have expectations for what to see in the world in order to actually parse the input coming in and pick what's important and tell a story out of it. If you can't tell that story, then you can't uh, make sense. When you can't make sense, you don't remember, and it becomes a kind of blank time in, in their lives. It's four, five, six, seven-year-olds who who tend to experience this phenomenon because they don't have enough world experience to make sense of what they're seeing, and so they just actually can't make sense of what they're seeing, which means they never actually see it in full. We're not blank slates; we bring ourselves into, with all that means, into context, and if we can't, you know, reconcile the self and the context, we actually can't make sense. We're totally distressed. Another really problematic example of this kind of thing is people put in solitary confinement, right? We use our social interactions and our social accommodations to each other in real physical and social time as a way of constructing a sense of self and self-awareness which is why putting a human being isolated from uh, all other cues about time passing and other people and in interactions yes. is a form of torture right yeah. because you are actually eviscerating their sense of self you're taking away their ability to conjure a reality in that moment there is nothing to perceive so you have nothing to go on in order to construct a self uh.
0: What a paradox that you're alone. You're all you have is yourself, but you lose yourself. That's heartbreaking. Oh, my God. Well, both of those examples are going to just stay with me for the rest of my
2: life. Yeah, they help us understand what you're really asking. Something very fundamental about what it means
0: to be a human. Right. So the things that we think of as purely rational, intellectual, ideas like so what i'm so interested in is how this dichotomy between like essentially the brain and the mind how that's artificial and that we have these separate ideas of like what takes emotion and what doesn't and i can you just blow that up for us please yeah i mean i think you pretty much did just
2: blow it up i mean like where is the emotion and where is the cognition in the process you're engaging as you walk into that physics class right I mean, from a scientific perspective, scientists are trained to parse the world into units, into separable things that you can then examine in isolation. That's what we do. And that's an extremely useful skill, right? Being able to disentangle things from each other Mm. so that you can understand the nature of them is is extremely important. But in the sense of biological systems... Those things that you disentangle, you're doing that only as a sci- as a kind of scientific an- analysis. You're n- it doesn't actually reflect that they are disentangled in the real world of of life. And so, you know, traditionally, cognitive scientists have, have studied things that have been, you know, thought of as sort of pure cognition, basic things like how do you phonologically decode in order to read? How do you have working memory for digits and whatever it is, right? But... Actually, when you look at and think about the broader experience of being in those experiments, what you're actually doing is you're looking at all college sophomores right there. That's pretty narrow, right? <laughs> Who are in a context they're familiar with, right? A building with a seat and a chair and all the stuff. <laughs> and you know, it's a good day, and they've had lunch, and and their dog didn't die that morning, right? Like, if any of those things don't you didn't sleep last night, and your dog died this morning, and uh, you haven't had lunch, and you're right, then today's not the day to study your working memory. That's not your real working. Remember, you can't do it because all this other stuff's going on, which actually shows you how much we're just holding constant half the process in order to watch move one part, which is great for science, but it actually does not then translate directly onto the world. You then have to reintegrate these parts to make dynamic systems that are, you know, operating in consorted holes as organisms in order to actually understand the situated nature of the thinking that we do. So once you do that, it becomes really clear that emotion, emotions and and cognitions are actually not not ever separate. There's no such thing as one without the other in an actual living, healthy person. Um, You know, emotion is the quality of engagement we have with the cognition. You can, as a scientist, sort of shine a light on the emotional aspect of what's going on there, and you can sort of shine a light on the cognitive aspect of what's going on there, and you can hold the cultural variation constant so that it isn't actually varying in a way that is messing with the thing you're trying to study in that context, and then you can say you've got a thing. But in real people, the cultural, developmental, experiential, subjective, sense of me is actively dynamically shaping the conjuring of the mind which is the thing that is now walking into physics class so it's really you might have emotions about it but the emotion is reflecting a thought a thing you noticed which you're then interpreting which you're and then that emotion is then driving what you're thinking about next and if you think about it this way i mean like you know whatever you're having emotion about is what you're thinking about you don't have emotions without thought right And then when you're thinking about it, that also drives you to have, you know, chains of other experiences about it, which are then driving, right? So you get this dynamic sort of, this dynamic sort of fluctuating, um, you know, uh, a space in which you're conjuring sensible stories, basically imagery that imaginings that are helping you to uh, appreciate and predict what's going on around you.
0: How do you think the society would be different if people did not separate, you know, didn't delineate as much between the, you know, rational air quotes and the emotional?
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, rational is actually emotional. It's what you value as being true, right? If you don't value it, then it's not rational anymore. I mean, some of the original work that uh, Antonio and Hanna Damasio did and their colleagues, for example, in the 1980s and early 90s showed that patients with deficits, brain lesions that interfered with their ability to invoke emotion, their cognition, right, in a very narrow sense of like IQ test cognition would stay the same, but they absolutely could not manage themselves in the real world because you don't, why would you think about it? You've got no reason to actually invoke the thought unless there's emotion also involved. Yeah, I think this artificial kind of wall, which you know, which is is a useful wall in science, yeah. but is limiting us in the application of science to society. We're working too hard to try to maintain two separate systems. We mm. teach kids all the things they need to know, and then we worry about their social emotional learning, right? And it's like, actually, if you just sit back and let those be the same thing, so that the process of of thinking about things is invoking dispositions and appetites for thinking more that becomes the emotional right the feeling of thinking and that subjective feeling of thinking is what we call purpose, curiosity, interest, depending on how it takes shape. So I think we're working way too hard to try to kludge together solutions where we are attending to all these pieces, when we could step back and set up the individual to show up as, as their whole self, and then the all the little fixes would fall away. You know, I kind of think of this, and this is going to show my ignorance about, about astronomy, but And kind of think about this like the Copernican Revolution in the way we understand the solar system, right? You can describe with the Earth as the center, you looking up. Right, you can describe, okay, this thing goes by and most things go by from east to west and there they go. And sometimes they go a little lower, and sometimes they come a little higher. And you know, we can make great predictions, but sometimes things go crooked or sometimes go flying by in the wrong direction, and we've no idea what to do with that. Right? Or, you know, Mars goes retrograde, like what is that? Right? And then you have to add Extra stuff mm. to your model to be able to accommodate all these all these apparent you know um, uh, apparent uh, ways in which the model has been violated, right? And if you suddenly reframe the entire space so that the center is actually not us, and realize that we are actually going around something bigger, also, all of a sudden, the need to uh, to retrofix. All of the small instances where things don't work the way you predict go falls away because the core model is different. I think we need to do that in society around the way we understand the subjective, holistic experience of people. And the way in which those experiences are the core of how they interact, how they make sense of the world, how they make decisions about the world, how well they are, how they learn in school, how they approach a new subject like a physics class they haven't been in before. I mean, I think it's the experience of the individual and of the community that actually is determining the dynamic state of the system moving forward, but we try to retro-explain based on all these other factors, which you can keep fixing them and adjusting them and adding stuff in to accommodate all the things that don't make sense. But that's a lot of work. If you just refocused the 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 center of the of the conversation, all of a sudden these fixes would resolve
0: themselves. What a fantastic analogy. The hurdle to, accepting ourselves as not the center of the universe. We had to let go of some stuff to accept that everything does not revolve around us, and that was quite painful. We had to give something up to have a system that actually reflected the reality of it. What would we have to give up in this analogy to stop fixing little pieces, little gears that are falling off and actually reframe the entire concept around what the reality is. Why are we resistant to this change? It takes work to update your models,
2: right? And you don't update those models that you bring with you unless there's really enough counter evidence that kind of forces you because you can't make sense and parse otherwise. Reframing the narrative around the experience of thinking would give us new insights into a whole lot of things like how to reform the education system, why we have so much civic unrest and uh, sort of why a- across the world right now, people are, you know, societies are moving toward authoritarianism over democracy, right? Democracy is predicated on the notion that there are different perspectives in the conversation yeah. and yeah. that being able to engage with those perspectives is how we actually come to build something coherent that we can all buy into. It doesn't mean that all the, the tensions get resolved. In fact, the tensions are generative, right, when it's done well. But the citizens in that system have to have a respect for the perspectives of others and for the complexities of a, and uncertainties of the dynamics of a, of a complex society. And we do not appreciate those complexities when we imagine, for example, what counts as learning in school, what counts as achievement or success, uh, what it means to be well uh, or to have made it, uh, you know, what it means to be productive, um, and and we really have to engage with those of subjective experiences of other people in order to really make a new kind of society together. But it's frightening because, first of all, people in the dominant position in the society have to give something up. They give yeah. up a kind of naivete and power that was, uh, you know, unexamined previously. The people in the more um, Uh, underdog roles uh, also need to learn to engage Productively with a, with a system that is uh, not designed around the, the premises that their life has been organized around. So you really have to acculturate yourself into a new style of interacting. And then we have to work out all the mess that ensues when, you know, all these different colors of ink, but you know, mixed together in the water. Um, it's a lot of work and it takes a really, uh, a, a really, uh, serious tolerance for difference um, and for honoring other people's subjective experiences. And we don't set people up in our media, in our schooling systems, um, uh, in our, you know, even things like public transportation systems, when we put everybody in their own little box and drive themselves, right? Like, don't get on with everybody else and sit next to them and chit-chat and figure it out, right? Like, we segregate people and it ends up teaching us you know, ways of perceiving and interacting with the world that I think we're seeing the unhealthy outcomes of right now.
0: How would you set up the next generation to understand ourselves and our minds better so that we can go forth into a a better society?
2: You have to model the kind of effort that goes into a patience, uh a tolerance of uncertainty that goes into being willing to sit with big ideas and digest them over time. Learning is not the outcome. Learning is the means the outcome is human development it's your developing capacities to engage with yourself in the world in more and more nuanced and uh, agentic and self-regulated uh, and complex ways and we need to ask ourselves how are the the activities and opportunities that I'm that I'm you know inviting my child to engage with helping them to develop themselves as a person not me developing it for them, making them into the person I envision, but me helping notice what it is that they are inclined toward, interested in, you know what I mean? And how can I, in a safe and appropriate way, set them up to develop the dispositions for working hard to solve the things and and work on the things that they care about. And helping kids develop those dispositions for hard work, for deep thinking, for curiosity, and to follow through on the stuff that matters to them is, I think, one of the main jobs of a parent. And it should be the job of school, but schools are too often not designed around that aim
0: that idea is so important they to sit with the discomfort of not knowing sometimes we need to develop tolerances for that like how would you implement that in a school for example just if you tomorrow you were um you know in charge like how would you implement can you give one example of how we would implement this idea in a school or in a school system
2: yeah. And I should say there are a lot of schools and school systems that do a fabulous job with this, right? It's not like nobody's ever done this. It's just that it's not mainstream. And those schools tend to constantly be fighting for their life because people think of the out, the learning outcome as the metric, but that's not the metric. There's this bigger thing that is the development of the person that is what actually matters. And we pay lip service to it in many places what you need to do is build out a system where the people in the system are in deep relationship with each other around the ideas that the system is meant to help them appreciate. It looks like apprenticeships and learning, like collaborative learning, but also like independent project learning. It looks like um, uh, uh, performance assessments where you discuss and debate about the things that you've accomplished so far, the, the weaknesses and strengths of that, the learnings, the open questions, and what you could do next to continue on this track, or not, if you feel like you've sort of come to an end where this has sort of resolved itself and that's enough to learn from this, let me try a new kind of thing now, right? Those much more process-oriented, messy, dynamic opportunities to think about big problems and to work hard on the small skills in service of those big problems, becoming curious about the perspectives and and identities of those around them, and then engaging together in construct a community around that shared uh, understanding. You know, schools that do this really well uh, are have amazing results with kids, life-changing results with kids, um, but we're scared to do it uh, so often because we think we're taking a risk by stepping off the fast-paced treadmill of the building block skills over time, you can develop these dispositions for seeking out the technical knowledge that you need in order to solve problems, and it flips the cart behind the horse. You end up, ironically, actually knowing the stuff better in the end, and you can remember it later, and you can use it and apply it later, uh, so it's just not right that this is at odds with high performance in a traditional sense. But then it also helps you develop these dispositions uh, that we've already discussed that become lifelong, uh, uh, you know, sort of rudders to steer you as you begin to engage with other kinds of problems and learning and development and relationships and things as you move through, you know, the complex landscape that is inevitably anyone's life.
0: Sometimes I daydream about a religion where the central promise is that in death you get to find out the answers to every question. All the unknowable details about history, science, about the inner lives of everyone you know, every mystery solved, everything you ever wondered met with a clear, decisive resolution. This theology is just sort of a personal fantasy. Born out of the mild agony I feel when I think about how much there is I do not know, cannot know, will never know. It feels somehow tragic. And yet, I have so much more information at my fingertips, we all do, than our ancestors could have ever conceived of. The access to so much more knowledge, the answers to so many more questions. And there's something, well, just heavenly about that. Something to think about next time you distractedly skim a Wikipedia page. Thank you so much to my brilliant guest today, Serafina Albadri Nance, who is the author of Starstruck, which will be out in June. It's available for pre-order. Support your local bookstore. And thank you so much to Dr. Mary Helen Imordino-Yang. She is a neuroscientist and human development psychologist, and she is the director of USC's Center for Effective Neuroscience Development, Learning, and Education, CANDLE for short. And you can find more on her and her fascinating work at candle.usc.edu you're enjoying strange customs and you feel like you might have a couple minutes to rate or review or subscribe um, we'd be forever grateful thank you our theme music is by evgeny Klemenko. additional music in this episode by spear fisher and blue dot sessions my producer is dale mcgowan strange customs is a production of only sky media Visit us online at onlysky.media slash customs. We'll be back in two weeks with more strange customs.